Indeedy, welcome to the Upful Life Podcast. I'm your host, B. Getz, and this is episode number 35, coming at you live and direct from the Vibe Junkie Studios in Oakland, California. It's shaping up to be one long, hot summer, y'all, but we are so grateful you are tuning in. Episode 35 of the Upful Life Podcast is brought to you by Herb and Music. Herbandmusic.com, the healing of the nations, is a fresh new online periodical that explores the voluminous, historical, intertwining relationship between cannabis and music and the cultures that surround The concept is an intentional, feature-based throwback to magazine journalism and topical coverage that really digs deep into our intellect. From wellness to consciousness, turntable, trumpet to nyabingi, and from seed to a tree, Herb and Music will humbly offer a hub of connectivity, a well of storytelling, a space for education and uplifting vibration and a portal to the healing of the nations. Now, cannabis and music have been cosmically intertwined since the beginning of time. Modern music and marijuana culture have enjoyed a chromatic relationship, a defiant righteous dalliance between these once forbidden fruits. Urbanmusic.com seeks to explore this storied history between the worlds of sound art, spirituality, and raised vibration. They intend to celebrate the people, the songs, and the stories behind the music, marijuana, and the movements. The focus will be on artisans and musicians, movers and shakers, individuals and collectives, all connected to cannabis culture, holistic nutrition, health and wellness, the culinary arts, plus ganja feature articles, interviews, and multimedia relative to social justice work and developments in the cannabis space. So please check out urbanmusic.com. That's H-E-R-B-A-N-M-U-S-I-C.com. Follow us on social media, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, YouTube, etc. 
This is a new endeavor I'm honored to be a part of and bring the Upful Life to the table with uh, Nico from Irie Mag and my man M.A. Michael Allegretto, who I know from the Spirit of Swanee production family. And uh, these cats are deep in the game, and as I stated, it's an honor and a privilege to be drafted to work with them on this righteous endeavor. So, urbanmusic.com, the healing of the nations. We're going to play out a little holding firm from Sisla Kalonji, and then start up episode 35. Every man deserves to learn So that's the crown of solid success All in the mind And I'm table about to return now Don't want to go get out of here All in the mind And I'm table about to return So that's the crown of solid success Indeedy, the Upful Life Podcast is back. I want to say thank you and a deep bow of gratitude to Kim Dawson for her thoughtful and enlightening conversation. Been uh, unpacking that for a few weeks now and response was really positive and encouraging to embark on the important dialogues that are necessary. And she was very brave and courageous and positive. And that's something that we can all, you know, follow her example. We can have the conversations and confront the difficult and uncomfortable reflections and ideas, learned biases, prejudices, etc. But we can do so with dignity and grace consideration, compassion, understanding, patience, etc. So let Kim uh, just be an example of uh, a great uh, a great way that we can open these dialogues and conversations and listen. And so we're going to do some more listening this week of the same nature. But before I get to episode 35's very special featured guest. I want to say you can rate and review this podcast on Apple Podcasts and iTunes. Um, I say that, I stress that often because it's uh, crucial and essential uh, to the magical algorithms that we so need to expose this show to new listeners. Um, of course, you can share it on Spotify and YouTube and Podbean and Stitcher and etc. But um, iTunes is what moves the needle. Apple Podcasts. So if you have the time or are so inclined, even if you don't listen by way of Apple or iTunes, please rate and review the podcast. Uh, 
we would be so grateful. And you can also reach me directly by emailing the show at b.getz at upfullife.com, b.getz at upfullife, U-P-F-U-L-L-I-F-E dot com. Any constructive criticism or uh, suggestions, music I need to be hip to, ideas you want to put on the radar, that's how you hit me. So appreciate everyone that's reached out uh, in the aftermath of, of the Deitch family uh, lettuce zoitis episode of course dave from dopey uh, went you know mega platinum uh, quickly became the most downloaded episode in my podcast's short history so thanks to dave from dopey and the whole dopey nation just had a major event in the dopey nation uh, just a few days ago so we miss you chris Second anniversary of his passing. If you're wondering what the hell I'm talking about, listen to episode 33 of the Up for Life podcast for an absolutely uh, astounding, emotional walk down memory lane with Dave from Dopey Podcast. So yeah, we're going to continue that vibe and energy of enlightenment and empowerment, of interesting narratives, important, salient topics du jour, And today, uh, we're going to do that with one of my oldest and dearest friends in the music scene, Chris Littlefield. Longtime sideman to Carl D. and Carl Denson's Tiny Universe. Chris plays trumpet, he plays flugelhorn. He's also quite the uh, electronic music uh, performer and producer with Closed Circuit. My man is out of Seattle, Washington. He's been holding it down there for a long time, as you'll hear in this conversation. He's really, as a youngster, he came out of these parts, Oaktown, not too far from where I speak to you from right now. And we'll hear all about his formative years and his path to Seattle. But we really don't go heavy on the music. And I want to say that out front. We're going to do another podcast with Chris when we're sitting across from each other can share a beverage and really chop it up about music. This was more uh, a conversation I wanted to have right now with people of color in my sphere of the music culture, people that I could have an open and honest dialogue with, and uh, I could probably put Chris at the top of the list, just because, you know, he's been rolling with Carl D since like 2002, um, and I've known him since shortly after that, and we just established a friendship and a bond and that one that carries on to this day. He's uh, seen a lot of twists and turns in my own journey and path and has always been a supportive friend and confidant, ear to listen, shoulder support. And he happens to be a brilliant musician and an educator, a teacher, a father to two teenage daughters. Um, Amazing man. And it's an honor and privilege to call him a dear friend. And and we're going to do a podcast about his musical career and journey in that regard. But this podcast is about the here and now, uh, be here now, if you will, uh, the reality of our surroundings, copyright fishbone. And Chris breaks it down on a level and in language that everybody can easily overstand. And by that, I mean he touches on the topics of uh, 
teaching children in the COVID era, both in the home and through his uh, music lessons that he provides for many years through the Seattle Drum School of Music. And then he's transitioned into the, the digital interface uh, teaching. So we get into that. We get into fatherhood in this era. First, fatherhood and, and, and teaching his kids about, you know, what's going on in the COVID era and, and how to maximize their, their learning potential or their engagement or just to give them the space they need to see it through on their own. But we also talk to him about, you know, the racial tensions and what it's like in Seattle versus the rest of the country being in an intermarriage uh, and having biracial children and then adding in the current political, social, cultural climate. So yeah, it's kind of heavy, but because it's me and Chris and we go way back, it's pretty casual, Um, but it's a deep powwow, one I'm very proud of, just like I am of Chris Littlefield himself. So we're going to play... the end of this Can You Feel It from Jam Cruise 2004. I go so far back with KDTU. Like, they were the first band not named Fish that I chased all over the U.S. And I've seen them second to only the Fish from Vermont in terms of the amount of times, roughly 150. Yeah, I know. It's crazy, right? So anyway... Uh, <laughs> During those years and miles and cities, I've come to know many members of the band, but nobody more so than Chris Littlefield, and that's why it is my distinct honor and privilege to have him on the show. Chris Littlefield, trumpet and flugelhorn, KDTU, coming up next. man you know been trying to get with some of my friends and family in the music community and check in during these troubling times so thank you for uh, making some time absolutely my pleasure my man yeah now i did a sweet introduction that i'll obviously play before uh the phone call on the podcast but not everyone that i've been lucky to have on the show have i known for as long as i've been blessed with your friendship so it's really really sweet to be able to talk to someone you know that it's just kind of seen our lives go by over the past almost 20 years now it's 2020 i think i oh my I, goodness. I met you wow. around 0203 yeah so, yeah Gosh, that was the beginning of the start of it all um, i know for me with the tiny universe well actually it was an 01 when i started but yeah you and i 
oh three. God, I remember at some point I came across some of the clothing you designed. Um, God, it's stuffed. It's tucked away in my closet somewhere. Right on. Yeah, the Upwell mm. International gear. I didn't design yeah. it, but I definitely was a part of the team. And mm-hmm. that's awesome. You still have it. Uh, you know, that'll be a collector's item one day. Let's hope. Yeah, exactly. Right on. And, you know, now that you bring it up, I think one of my earliest memories around the time that we met uh, was at Jazz Fest at the House of Blues. And uh, during set break, you had gotten word that you had a child. Oh, yeah. came back out and uh, announced to a packed House of Blues that you were a daddy. Yeah, I was about to be a father. Uh, That's when I found out. Well, my wife and I weren't married as of yet, but we were cohabitating. And <clears throat> heading in that direction, inevitably, and so uh, got word that weekend uh, that I was about to be a father. It was like, uh, like I think to tell people, you know, the best thing I ever did. And uh, since then, it's like, gosh, we're coming up on, let's see, 15, almost haven't been together for 20 years, but they were coming up on, let's see, my oldest daughter's 15, so 16, 17 years of marriage. Well, as yeah. they say, Mazel Tov. And, yeah. Uh, that's just a treasured Jazz Fest memory when I think of you. And, and you yeah. know, since we're, uh, you know, on the topic of children and mm-hmm. and being a father, this has got to be this, this COVID slowdown industry halt uh, that the music community has been navigating for the better part of, like, four months now. It's got to oh, be the first ex- extended time that you've been home like this, like, like daddy style like this, right? Oh, yeah. You know, gosh, a funny way of putting it, it's like the troubling times of COVID slowdown. It's like putting it mildly, as we all know. <laughs> of course. Um, <clears throat> but, uh, yeah, not to undermine your, your statement there, but, uh, yeah, it's it's a very engaging, rewarding, challenging experience uh, in the perspective of being a father and also um uh, an educator, music educator, teaching privately trumpet, you know, for well over 10 years here now. Here now at the Seattle Drum School of Music, or as we like to refer to it as the Seattle Drum School of Love, um, embedded in our music community here for, oh, God, this business drum for 35 years. But um, it's, yeah, I, I tell you, it's all about the redirecting, refocusing, rebranding, um, reimagining our lives. You know, and like you, you just uh, kind of brought up the position of being a father and dealing with children. And, you know, I've got it on both sides because I teach daily. You know, I've got like 21 students and uh, and then I've got my children at home as well. And so dealing with kids and trying to maintain, you know, any kind of a focus or um, some sort of goals you know, on a daily basis and some semblance of a routine is definitely challenging. Um, and I don't know if you've talked to many people, I'm sure you have, uh, in this interview series that you're doing <clears throat> about the, that do have children or and or teach, I'm sure, or interacting with kids, you know, and it's like it's, it's definitely, um, it's, it's rough. It's difficult for them. Uh, the first few weeks was, pretty easy but you know the last couple of weeks you know with the you know in, uh, shelter in place social distancing let alone um you know remote learning online um you know with my kids and also my students you know you eventually start to see a little bit of the, this withdrawal thing happening 
Um, because, you know, for them as children, um, that interaction, you know, especially up until the point of like, you know, my oldest daughter is 15. So, and my youngest is now 12, you know, it's, uh, they're at an age where I think it's, it's manageable, more manageable than say younger kids. And so my younger students, not all of them, but a few, I've seen them just kind of start to, you know, really struggle, um, towards the end of the school year. And then when school is out, they seem to do a little bit better. Um, but you know, there's been a, a greatly reduced amount of activity for them. I mean, it's 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 down to a trickle. If they can do anything this summer, uh, there's no summer camps really in person. And if there is, it's like oh, uh, mostly distance learning. You know, online summer camps and things like that. And you know, both my daughters right now are kind of reluctant to even do that. I can understand the reluctance or just the disconnect, especially after all this time. And mm-hmm. I told you off the air, my partner does uh, the online summer camps for cooking. So oh, she's been uh, navigating, you know, the various levels of engagement and trying to connect with the kids like a teacher otherwise would in person. And that's a hell of a challenge. And so you're you're working through that uh, as an educator and as a father with the children. And to answer yeah. your question, we've had a couple people, a couple parents on. Ryan Zoidis comes to mind. He's got a, I think, oh, 12-year-old yeah. daughter. So, um, yeah, we've been hearing about that, but I'd be interested to explore that even more. Like, um, do you find uh, that the learning curve, just tr- talking about the instrument, like teaching trumpet, uh, is is there a change, positive or negative, in the learning curve uh, or how they're, well, how they're doing? Um, you know, I, t- I tell you this much, B, is that... I think as far as all the instructors that are here, I mean, there's something like 21 instructors and there's two schools. Nobody's teaching in person. Uh, there might be a random lesson that comes uh, from one of the drum instructors. And we primarily teach drums here, but we do teach all the instruments. Uh, what I have found, uh, one, I've been able to maintain all of my students. So the transition for me going from teaching in person to online was relatively seamless, except for some hiccups and glitches here and there due to, uh, you know, internet connectivity and, you know, uh, software interfacing issues. But um, the learning curve, I think I've been pretty fortunate with that. Like I've been, like I said, I've been able to maintain almost all of my students, whereas like most of the other instructors, especially with drums, uh, I think it's a little more challenging, a little more difficult for them. And so we've lost about 30% of our student base you know, right off the bat, I think within the first month. Um, so, but the results that I've seen have been pretty positive and pretty impactful. And I think it's just because it's, uh, you know, you don't have the, the issue of, of sitting behind an entire drum kit and being in a room uh, with that instrument and having another instructor. And it's like a little bit more distance between, say, like if you're using an iPad or um, a webcam or something like that. Uh, for some reason with trumpet, it seemed to have translate pretty directly. And, um, my students for the most part have been remained fairly engaged, like with the exception of a couple. And, uh, and they, they were kind of trouble. They were kind of having problems with the instrument. They weren't sure if they wanted to stay with it to begin with. So they've taken a break, but, uh, the learning curve for my kids seems to be pretty well intact. I mean, they're, they're still engaged and just like anything else with, you know, getting young minds to embrace that, uh, 
that work ethic, you know, like I repeatedly tell my, you know, my kids uh, and my students, you know, it's just like, you know, these things aren't going to improve them on their own, you know, and it's like there's no mystery to that process, you know, moving forward with anything or accomplishing uh, something in life, and it's just, it's just all comes down to time. And the more time you spend and the energy you put into something, the more you get back. And then it becomes, you know, its own greatest reward in and of itself. And then you devise, you know, you start to realize the satisfaction from that process. And we all know this as professional musicians when we practice or don't. And we see the results because we're, and we, it, the, the impact is more instantaneous because we're adults and we have that unique uh, perspective of time, again, of having experienced a lot of stuff. So it, we get it. Um, now, when it comes to younger minds and students, you know, it's like they get it. But as we know, kids are. It's like they don't. They don't really want to work hard and stuff for the most part, and they expect things to come easy. And um, so those normal challenges are in place. You know, now the thing that I'm finding with keeping my students engaged, um, and I, I do this anyway in person, but um, online is that because there's this weird distance, there's this weird buffer. You know, and this is also the reason why kids are suffering. Uh, because they're not having that in-person contact, which is so crucial for their uh, early development. And I don't care what age you're at, if you're, a, you know, an adolescent or a teenager or pre-adolescent, um, kids need to be around other kids. They need to be around people. And uh, it definitely has an effect on, like, their engagement level, their um, overall mental health, their overall excitement and enthusiasm. And like I said, with, like, my oldest daughter especially or both my daughters actually um and some of my students they start to kind of want to check out and you have to work extra hard and it's it requires an extra bit of energy and a little bit more cheerleading you know um and encouragement and, and enthusiasm to kind of keep them engaged uh online because it's not a normal way it's not a natural uh means of interfacing with other human beings but you know in this day of technology where you know, we've got TikTok and Zoom and FaceTime and, you know, social media. You know, their generation is so used to having all this stuff readily available and navigating that whole uh, territory. It kind of comes naturally to them, so it's not as bad as it probably would have been, say, if this occurred 15, 20 years ago. Um, yeah, so it, it definitely requires a little bit more effort, but I'm managing to keep my students engaged and somewhat, you know, now that school's out, we don't have to worry about that so much with the girls at home. Right. That, wow. So that was a really uh, interesting and thoughtful look into, you know, the, the sort of reality <clears throat> when it comes to teaching and children's attitudes and engagement. And I think, you know, for instance, I watched, they live streamed one of your lessons, I guess, Seattle Drum. You know, they put a... Oh, yeah, a that sort was of the like, interview I did with uh, Aaron Strait, old buddy of mine, music promoter, turned uh, video documentarian. And he's been doing a series of these mini documentaries on uh, people who's changed their lives and their livelihood and their career uh, to being an online-based um format and uh, yeah it was it was really really cool and i this is this is we're sort of getting the longer form of all of that right i just it was a nice view into you know your process and also you know watching a student learn as you instructed them and and it's just you know i understand a lot of musicians in the sort of jam jazz funk 
seen have made themselves available for different live lessons and uh, connecting with the, the audiences in a way that's not just performing, but is actually teaching and sort of passing down, you know, skill, knowledge, tradition, and even just like friendship. And, and that's a unique yeah. thing. There's never any time or space for that kind of, uh, you know, anything of that nature when the bands and artists are constantly on the road. So it's been a really unique, you know, transition that we could have never seen coming. And, and I have to amplify your point that had this happened a generation or two ago, uh, we'd be much further at a loss for how to even carry on with educating outside of the, you know, oh, old school homeschool format, which we all know yeah. nine out of 10 parents aren't really equipped for that. So no. there is a silver lining <laughs> that the kids grew up on the web. Yeah. And that's just it, man. And I, three points just come to mind. You know, it's like when this whole thing started, uh, I started the notion of counting my blessings, you know, and, and realizing, and I, I do this anyway, but even more so now, uh, of, you know, how fortunate we are and, you know, what we have in, in our home and also, you know, the here that I have the Seattle Drum School of Music, you know, for the fact that, like, I have my studio here, and I can, I'd come here every day, and then I'm here back again at night, and this is not only just my teaching studio, this is also, like, my recording project studio where I work on, on my stuff as well, so I'm really blessed to have that as, like, my fortress of solitude to get away from the house and, you know, give everybody space, uh, and the other thing, too, is, like, the comment on what you had asked me early on about, you know, being home, <clears throat> Right. You know, where I'm, I'm still gone like 30% of the year. And I'm fortunate enough that I'm not one of those musicians who's gone, you know, 120 to 200 dates a year. You know, I we're gone something like typically oh, 90 to 100 and maybe 110 dates out of the year. So it seems like we're gone a lot, but we're not. So it's really for us, it's like a lot of extended weekends every other weekend, you know, term with the tiny universe, uh, which is unfortunately come to a screeching halt. But uh, being home more around my girls and my family and my wife, um, yeah, it's definitely a blessing now. And it's like one that I haven't had a break this long, but I, you know, strangely enough, uh, after about a month or so, I really got used to it and I don't mind <laughs> not being gone all the time, you know, or enough I'm of sure. the time. And the other thing that, uh, ties into all two of those points and the third point is, uh, you know, it's given me more time to work on more of my own craft, uh, you know, and then push more for, you know, this aspect and avenue of my life, you know, which I've been doing concurrently with touring with the tiny universe. It's just that this is kind of my sole means of income right now uh, until other things, either one, you know, the touring thing starts up again, uh, which is going to be a long time to be honest. And uh, the other thing too, in the meantime is like music production and commercial music, you know, online sales that way. And so, um, you know, searching my branding, like with that, uh, uh, interview or mini documentary suggests, you know, it's like made in quarantine. Uh, what is everybody doing, you know, to redirect their, you know, their career path. Um, so, you know, I've got time to do that now. You know? Yeah. And, and that's really been a common refrain. I mean, I've been doing these interviews pretty much. I mean, really for a couple of years, but, but it, with regard to the virus and the fallout and, and everything I've been doing, you know, a number of interviews and a common refrain is that 
you know, wow, I've really had an opportunity to sink into myself, my creativity, um, and my own craft, and then anything that's individualized <clears throat> out of that, such as branding or putting out your own independent music. And I've obviously, in addition to being a you know lifelong, basically, fan of the Tiny Universe, as long as you've been in the band, uh, mm -hmm. I also, you know, been privy to your various side project, electronic music with closed circuit. So you are blessed to have the uh, lab, if you will, to go to and and make your own shit and mm -hmm. and see where that takes you because as you said it's going to be a while till the touring train is up and running again i know and it's it's so sad man i tell you that's one thing that's you know out of many things that are going on right now if we just had to pick one for the sake of conversation at this moment it's like it's kind of heartbreaking because i i haven't even really looked at the statistics and goodness knows i've been looking at you know far too much information in the statistics you know, in terms of the current crises, crises uh, that we're experiencing right now. But, um, you know, I really feel for the music industry and the music venues specifically, because like in the best of my mind and estimation, better, more than if this is probably going to go on, and it's very likely it's going to go on at least another year is what they're speculating, even though there's a lot of political uh, banter out there that's, you know, trying to make us think otherwise, um, that the music venues the vast majority of them are not going to survive this. And Paul and a lot of them haven't. A lot of the smaller venues haven't survived this already. Um, <clears throat> I don't know where, say, like case in point, like the Boom Boom Room, you know, one of our, our favorite stomping grounds and watering holes and, of and clubs and gateway to so many players, you know, in our in our community and, and the jam band scene to pass through those doors and on grace that stage. And um, I remember about a month ago, I saw them doing, you know, a GoFundMe, you know, campaign. And I have no idea where that's at. And I hope to God that, like, they, they make it through this. You know, it's still going. It uh, it's not over. Uh, they do video uh, sort of streams from their various jazz fests and super jams and raise mm -hmm. money. I can't speak to how uh, far along they are in terms of the, the whole thing. But I do know that it's uh, they're still working towards saving the place so yeah that's good yeah and anyone that's well, listening to this podcast make sure i, I believe it's on sunday nights uh 6 30 uh west coast time uh -huh. they do a they do a show i'm sure you you've been on the screen or in the audience at a number of these through the years and mm -hmm. yeah i i, I got a tipatina same thing and and you know for all these main major rooms that people know because of their storied histories there are a number of rooms that are you know in smaller towns and s smaller cities and and are you know struggling they don't have the branding where they could sell tipatina's t-shirts or boom boom room raise money because right. they got numerous super jams so i try yeah. not to make the podcast super gloom and doom but it's i'd be remiss if we didn't acknowledge it's a very frightening situation to think that these rooms you know will be in essence vacant for a, a calendar year plus uh, mm -hmm. with really no end in sight and, and of course the political discourse is demoralizing and the 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 everything and, from the, and divisive <laughs> and, yeah, and divisive and, and we'll get to that later <laughs> of course um i mean we're, we can talk about it all because uh that's really kind of uh why i've pivoted the podcast from just being like the music nerd minutia to really just talking about life because i kind of feel 
it's it's privilege and it's bypassing for me to just talk about cool tours and albums and remember when when there's so oh, yeah. much suffering going on and and you're somebody i as i've acknowledged i've known a long time i feel really comfortable talking to and and i'm honored that you're willing to kind of like go there with me here because it's not easy to have these conversations let alone no. for an audience well, B, i'll tell you this much too it's like the honor is mine my friend well reciprocal you know, and I, and I have a lot of admiration and respect for you and your journey and your path. And as much as I want to talk music, and I think we will, because um, mm-hmm. we need music. Now, I think the part of the, the fucked up energy and anger divisiveness is we, we can't go out and check that shit at the door and just dance. Like, we're being oh, denied no. that. Yeah. And, you know, not, not through anybody's intent, you know. I mean, it was, we all know that's pretty obvious, but... Uh, you know, uh, you know, all of a sudden, I think as the song goes, all we need is love. And, um, yeah, there's not enough of that being fostered uh, right now. And to speak to the element of not being able to go out and also how I, I failed to mention this early on in the, in the interview, uh, another notion that came to me, uh, right off the bat, I saw a lot of people being very creative and very uh, um uh, what's the word I'm looking for, uh, an alternative or uh, ways of thinking and, and uh, creating and doing things online. Uh, and it was really, really uplifting to see how people had uh, managed to devise or carve out something um, close to whatever they were doing in real life in the virtual realm. And uh, people being very resourceful, that was what I was looking for. And that spirit has actually kind of continued. Like I've seen a few posts online of like in Europe, uh, where they were trying different alternatives for having concerts. And now that, you know, we're at, like, what, stage two in some places, some have had to go back to stage one, of uh, reopening the economy, and I've seen a few videos of people, like, what was it, there was a club in Amsterdam or something like that where they had social distancing in place, but they had tables 10 feet apart, and there's a DJ playing, but everybody has to remain seated, and they can only have so many people in the building at a time. And then they just do like, you know, almost like a jazz set, you know, where it's like, you know, you're there for that show. And then, you know, the t- ticket price is pretty exorbitant, but um, the people who could afford to do it were going and loving it because at least it was some semblance of social interaction and, you know, with musical and entertainment. And then, you know, they probably do this. They'd cycle people through uh, two to three times in a night kind of a thing. Um, I also saw a post, it was Scotland or something, where they were proposing uh, doing drive-in concerts you know like almost like you're going to a drive-in movie you oh yeah that just started happening actually here just started Mm -hmm. there was a couple in chicago last weekend and magic beans have been doing it in colorado so yeah definitely freaking brilliant you know i mean that's that's the spice of life man right there and that's the whole spirit of the community and all of us you know as artists we get inspired to see that kind of stuff and then fans get inspired but it's the nature of the beast, you know. It's just like uh, necessity is the mother of invention. And, uh, you know, being artists and creative types, you know, we have to be, we have to think in terms of problem solving. How can we preserve this? What what can we do to, you know, make the most or something out of it? How can we pre- preserve our way of life? And um, that's encouraging to see. It is for sure. And I'm definitely, like, down to go to some socially responsible and distant sort of uh situations like that there's actually a 
a major regression, not going on just here in California, but also in the little burner community up in Grass Valley where uh, there was like an ir- irresponsible social distance or uh, irresponsible gathering, no social distancing. And mm-hmm. now there's a, like an outbreak in the burner community up there. And uh, wow. it's been, a, you know, that's another rabbit hole we could chase. But I just wanted to kind of, I'd be remiss and I'm not here to play devil's advocate, but you mm-hmm. brought up two things. Uh, when you said, but ticket prices are exorbitant. Well, I think that that's not just a, but it becomes like the promoter or the producer, you know, really in order to even come close to breaking even at a situation with 20 or 30% capacity, plus all the additional protocols, the cost to do business is exorbitant. Therefore the ticket prices is exorbitant. And yeah, the people that are most compromised by these circumstances are the working class and the, you know, not the type of people who can throw down $200 a head for a seat at the table. I'm not right. saying we shouldn't do that. Um, I'll, the flip side is like the drive-ins are, look awesome, but we're, the social contract, like, is everybody going to be responsible and respectful? And, and I, I think I, it's hard to say, man, because you look around and, for every one of us that's doing our part or doing our best, there are a number of people who, you know, believe differently and behave accordingly. And that's why we're going back to phase one and two. And I know. Alas, here, it's like the last four months didn't happen. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and we were on a nice trajectory. Too. Yeah. You know, things were going well. And it's, you know, the only analogy I can think of for this is, um, you know, athletes and injury. <clears throat> and in the regard that, you know, if you uh, return to your, you know, normal level of uh, of performance too soon, you re-injure yourself. And that's and it's just as simple as that. You have to ease your way into these things, and you have to be patient, and you can't force it, and you can't rush it. And when you do, it's like, well, guess what? Now you got to start all over again. Right, but it's it's such a great analogy, dude, because if you even extrapolate it into, well, they say, well, the economy and the kids go back to school and all, all the adju- or like the sort of reasons, if you will, for mm-hmm. rushing, you can draw a straight line to, well, we have sold out tickets and he signed a contract for 30 mil. We've got to play him. Like, it, it's the same sort of like capitalist, like, it's just the essence of it. Of it is just, yeah. is capitalism that forced us into this situation. And man, it my heart aches because of people who have been out of work, not just musicians like yourself, because you do, as you mentioned, have you can diversify your bonds to borrow a Wu Tang quote. But like the people mm-hmm. who, who build your stages, run your sound, run your lights. Oh uh, yeah, you know it's it. <sighs> My heart aches for them, you know, as much, if not more, than the people on the stage. Oh, absolutely, you know. Uh, but, you know, fortunately, I mean, there's a little bit of a bright spot there regarding, you know, their predicament and others, you know. Um, and that means, you know, the federal government is saw fit to uh, extend unemployment benefits to those of us who are, like, independent contractors, and uh True. You know, our 1099 employees so that's available out there there's the stimulus money uh whatever um you know we're also fortunate enough that we have a little bit of savings to kind of cushion that that blow or supplement with so um you know my wife is is managed like she lost all of her work i mean because she was in childcare. 
Oh, man. <clears throat> and teaching from home. So she's self-employed. So all that went away. And now because, of, you know, things opened back up and some people were allowed to go, you know, one family person was allowed to continue their work. But, uh, um, you know, so she's watching one or two kids. You know, and the type of employment that their parents are doing is is kind of has social distancing embedded in it, meaning the fact that they're not dealing with a whole lot of people in the general public. So, um, so the chances are pretty low there. So, you know, she got a couple of kids back, but that's enough. I and mean, then, you know, we have to have them in the house, and so we got to be really cautious about our interactions there. Um, you know, and that's about all we can afford to have around. You know, you can't you can't rush into this. You can't include too many people into your quote unquote COVID circle, because uh, like you know it starts to expand on the front side and the and the back side too. But yeah, just to speak again to like all the people that are employed in, within the industry. You know, like the the lighting guys, the LDs, the front house engineers, the you know the barbacks, the bartenders, um, doormen, security. Um, you know, everybody in the infrastructure, man, that was the first thing that I, you know, was kind of heartbreaking to me too. It's just like, Oh God, man, what about all those guys? Yes, indeed, man. We did a fundraiser poster for uh crew nation to raise money for production peeps because of mm -hmm. the way we were feeling. And yeah, uh, it was really successful. So we, yeah, we raised nice. over 13 grand. It was great. But at the same time, at, when we started it, we thought maybe around now we'd be like the light at the end of the tunnel and it's quite right. the opposite so yeah. who knows maybe we'll have to the tunnel yes we do man and 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 with obviously you know we got to get to the hard stuff man we gotta you know it's not in any way the reason why i called you but i as i mentioned mm -hmm. before i feel comfortable talking with you because i've known you for so long and yeah, I, sure. I feel like we have a common understanding of one another and, and talking about racism and talking about what's happening out there now is, is just such so hot button and people are so sensitive that I, I just want to approach it with the requisite respect. You know, like I, I, my whole shit. And I said this to Kim Dawson on the last interview and to, mm -hmm. D, to DJ Williams or your bandmate who, um, yeah. you know, like my whole shit, my music and culture Everything I hold dear that's like from my writing to the clothes I wear, it all c comes from the contributions of black culture. And, and, yeah. and I've like enjoyed this charmed life, going to shows, writing about them. And I felt like finally I saw the writing on the walls. Like I can't just sit idly by and enjoy the jams. And I made a a pledge that I was going to talk about these topics on the show. And I want to right. start with your kids. Um, if you're comfortable doing so, how sure. are you navigating this toxic climate and, and all the anger and hatred, racism, the black lives matter movement? How, how do you walk through that, uh, as a father? Um, well, you know, it's again, um, uh, like I was talking about how dealing with the online or distance learning, you know, I've been approaching it and, and uh, navigating these waters with my children in much the same manner as being direct, you know, open, candid, um, honest, compassionate, understanding, you know, supportive about all of this as, as much as informative. And that's pretty much ties into however I parent with my girls and that's 
it's just kind of always the same same approach, you know. So I, I try to paint a picture for them so it's it's easy to digest. Um, it's a more manageable way to kind of make sense of this and understand the inner workings without getting too complex and uh, going too far down, you know, the historical rabbit hole with them, which my oldest daughter grasps more. Uh, my younger daughter um, grasps a little less, but she's aware of the big picture, you know. Um, and so managing that with my girls, you know, um, there, there hasn't been... A whole lot of big questions really from them uh, about this but I can guarantee I can definitely tell you that they have felt the pressure uh, especially right after uh, the uh, first round of protests you know that happened and then like the subsequent writing that was embedded in all of that and uh, God, I almost wanted to say Rodney King <laughs> and uh, yeah so I you know all of that and um, I tell you, you know, there were some very, very emotionally trying moments for them. You know, one again, it ties into uh, what I what I said earlier. Uh, when we first were talking before we conducted sort of the interview going was like at this time of what I call pandemic and protest. Uh, they were feeling the the social pressure and the 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 uh, seething, um, palpable palpable uh, level of, of tension, anxiety, and anger and frustration. You know that was going on. You know, compounded by um, you know a quarantine situation. You know, and that led led to a couple of, of, of episodes of them basically imploding and breaking down. You know, um, talk about heartbreaking. You know, it's just like to see your child um, just so frustrated to the point of tears that there's nothing they can do about it, and it's completely out of their control. And there's nothing you can really do about it except for comfort them. You know, and to have a discussion about this and, you know, try and talk through that and find out where their heads are at with all this and then try to help them understand why this is this is going on. And then having to be honest with them and say, like, OK, you know, as shitty as this is, I know how difficult it is. I can see it. But, you know, we've got to keep ourselves together. And for these particular particular reasons, we have to maintain you know, a, a level and spirit and decorum of, of hope and optimism that we will get through this. I mean, it's, it, it kind of get, turns into a survivalist sort of situation. And statistics prove and suggest that people that remain hopeful and have a goal and can see, you know, a bright outcome from all this stuff tend to make it through these kinds of things. And that's, that's the kind of thing that I try to instill upon them, you know, in addition to making sense of it and understanding you know, all the different components and as to why and where this comes from, where it's going, how long it's, we're going to be embedded in this, how long we can expect this. You know, so I'm not necessarily sugarcoating anything, but I'm not, you know, laying it on thick either. So um, it, it's definitely like you, you have to gauge it and manage it in some way that, uh, you know, like I said, so they can digest it. Right on. Yeah, I can't imagine what it's like for your kids or kids in general. And I, I, I feel, I just feel horribly about the world, state of the world that we're bequeathing to the next generation. It's like the first time in however long that it, it's like a regression, you know, from like parent to child, like giving them a better mm -hmm. world. And Oh, yeah. And honestly, man, it, I, it's, it's, just curious, because I'm in Oakland, right? Obviously, there's right. a deep panther 
Which is where history. I'm from. Oh, where? Did I ever no. tell you about that? I used to, yeah, no, let's go there for a second. 62nd and Telegraph. Uh, what was it? 1970. We moved in 77. I was there until I was about 10 or 11. I finished 6th grade up here in Seattle or Washington over in Bremerton. But I was over there and uh, down in Oakland. And the place where I lived in Oakland was really close to the Oakland um, Berkeley border. We were on Alcatraz, not far from. Uh, no, we're on Telegraph, but not far, far from Alcatraz. Maybe like two or three uh, blocks from Alcatraz, which is what is it? The East West. So that's the border from Oakland and Berkeley. Right. And not uh, far from across, where I live. Across the street, there was a Black Panther house from my mother's house. Uh, and we lived in an area, a neighborhood that was all these. Um, uh, not craftsmen, they were all Victorian homes, you know, and that was also a point in time when, you know, homes were a lot more affordable, <laughs> my mother sure. was a nurse, so, so, you know, single parent, uh, she could actually buy, she actually bought this home and was able to afford it by, on her nurse's salary, anyway, but across from us, there was a Black Panther, Black Panther house, and so, like, that was probably, like, eight, eight till about, when I realized it was eight or nine, something like that. So this is still like kind of the mid seventies. So this might have been like seventy three to seventy six or seventy five, seventy six. Oh yeah, that's like uh, major that was, activity, Panther activity those years around here. Yeah, and uh, they had a house house over there, and I didn't really understand. I think it was my brother, my older brother, who was fourteen years older than I am, uh, told me at that point in time. And he wasn't in the house; he was already out. It uh, told me, and it's like, yeah, that's a Black Panther house over there. And I didn't really know much about the Black Panthers, you know. I just, I, it, for some reason, I had, I thought there was this bad connotation. And then, you know, there's mixed, there was mixed feelings in the community about Black Panthers. They're like, what are they? Are they for, are they for good? And this is also like, you know, the the pinnacle of like the Black Power movement uh, in the '70s, you know. And uh, and this is like kind of ground zero, you know, the Bay Area for all this. And so. Um, um, didn't really understand what they're doing, but I, I used to see, I used to watch them. You know, I was home like during the summers or something like that because I was a latchkey kid. Um, they had vans that would come and go periodically throughout the day, in the morning, middle of the day, and the afternoon. Come to find out, the Black Panther house, they had a preschool there and a daycare. Word. That was like one of their community houses for that sort of thing. And then I would see people filing out of there in the evenings at night, and the place would be totally, you know, darker, finished. I think I don't think anybody was in there past ten or eleven. But then they would have like community meetings there in the evenings. You know, it took me a long time to figure all this out later on. But like my brother told me, like, yeah, it's a Black Panther house over there. So you know, and the original, and the, the, pretty much the sole intention, you know, of Black Panther Party was community action. You know, yes. uh, community action and integration and uh, protection, you know, of the black community from within. You know, it was not an aggressive, it was not like we're out to get whitey <laughs> kind of thing, as a lot of people thought it was. You know, it was like it was an insulary sort of a community action, you know, to make our community safe and our streets safe. And then also to weed out, you know. At that point in time, you know, which was a lot of uh, drug activity that was like being was heavily pervasive, you know, in the 70s in the black communities and the black communities were becoming was starting to, you know, this is all post civil rights um, or shortly after civil rights movement, mind you, within 10 years. And then, um, you know, starting to deteriorate with crime and drugs and, and, and all these other kinds of things. And this is well before, like, you know, the 80s uh, when the, the whole uh, gangs activity and crack 
uh, inundated the neighborhoods then too. And then that was another devastating element, you know, to the black community. And so, yeah. So anyway, no, that, that. that was awesome and really informative. And, you know, I would have, I got to tell you, so it's funny you say about how you initially had this perception, even growing up across the street from it, that there was some negative connotation because my suburban Jewish white self in Cherry Hill, New Jersey growing up, that's always how there was like aspersions cast on the Black Panthers from a young age. Like, So mm-hmm. it, it took me moving here, not just to California, but moving to Oakland. And obviously loving the music and, and culture, as I acknowledge, that I had an almost uh, curiosity as to, you know, what was that really about? And uh, I've done a considerable amount of reading and research since I've been here. And, and it really just aligns with what you said about the community action response to drugs and crime and the sort of wave that came over in the aftermath of the civil rights movement. So, yeah, I've been reading like Eldridge Cleaver, Huey mm-hmm. Newton... Etc. Oh, yeah. Bobby Seale. So it, yeah. it's been really uh, an education. Yeah. Soul on Fire, Soul on Ice. Yes. Um, H. Rap Brown, all those guys. I mean, I remember reading when I was younger, probably in junior high school and maybe some in high school when I first moved up here to the Northwest, Pacific Northwest, as I sometimes refer to it as the Great, great White North. Um, because <laughs> Seattle, as seemingly integrated as it is, it's still seeming, it's mostly predominantly white. You know. That's what actually was my next question. And not that I want to get away from the Panthers the so much. The Northwest is predominantly white. Right. And and I was gonna say, so you move as a as a young man from, you know, the the bosom of the Panther movement, literally, to a predominantly Caucasian place like Washington. And now now that's where where you're raising your kids. Um so yeah. you feel like uh you know, Seattle is a is a righteous area for you know your daughters to grow up juxtaposed say with like in oakland which absolutely um you know and i've been in the northwest for a long time and so it's it's a funny thing you know because um i'll just give you a little backstory here is that uh, comparatively speaking you know for what stereotypically is considered black in this country you know if you sound like you're from the hood you know if you talk with a, a certain you know inner city accent and you've, you've been predominantly raised in nothing but black communities, inner city, all that kind of stuff. You know, our, our level and means of diction and speech is different. It's almost like colloquialism. So, like, you know, if you were somebody from, you know, like Minnesota, or if you're from somebody from Georgia, you know, if you're from the South, you're going to have an obvious twang. If you're somebody from the, you know, East Coast, you know, like uh, East of Seaboard. So if you're Maine, New York, uh, Boston. You know, all those kind of stuff. You're definitely going to have different colloquialisms or slant to your voice. But since I didn't grow up primarily in that, only half of my upbringing was, you know, in a fully, you know, uh, black community. And, you know, my entire family is all black. I came from from a black family. I'm a black man. Uh, but then moved to the Northwest, you know, and all of a sudden went from the middle of the city to the suburbs. Not, you know, as a kid, it's like, okay, transition, transition, and living in a predominantly white community, with the exception of um, a high uh, contingent of um, Filipino community because of the naval bases that are up there. There's two. Uh, well, there's the Marine base, and then there's the submarine, the Trident submarine bases. And then, like, one of the biggest shipyards in the country is 
over there in Bremerton, which is on the other side of uh, Seattle, about an hour's long ferry the ferry ride away. So you can compare this to like almost size-wise Oakland versus San Francisco. And um, having grown up there the rest of my uh, childhood and adolescence and then going off to college in eastern Washington where it was pretty much all white, Central Washington University in the center of the state. Um, so I spent like the next, I don't know, 10, 20 years, well, the next 10 years, I would say, from junior high school, high school, and then college being in a predominantly white environment. And then moving back to Seattle long before I started uh, my family. And uh, there is a perception because of my speech patterns and because of my addiction and all this kind of stuff that I never grew up black or I was not part of the black experience, you know, quote unquote. And you can get that sort of, uh, that sort of experience from both sides, you know. And like DJ puts it really well. I think he even made a Facebook post about this. We even talked about this a little bit, you know. It's just like, Within our, in the black community, we, there's a term that goes blacker than thou. You probably heard that before, that term. And, sure, uh, definitely. What it pertains to, it's just like, you know, you're not black enough for some people, but you're too black for others, you know, and then some people may think that it's like you're just per, per, uh, uh, primarily white on the inside, but black on the outside, then the term for that is like zebra, you know. So there's a lot of these cultural assumptions that, get thrown on certain people based on for their perceived background, uh, one, how they carry themselves, how they dress, how they speak, you know, all these kinds of things. So that being said, and then raising kids in this environment, which in the part of the city that we've settled in and have been for like the last 15, 17 years is very culturally diverse. And I mean like culturally diverse in the sense of like on a very like working class level. You know, we're not embedded, you know, in, um, in the hood, quote unquote, so to speak, but we're not living in Bellevue either, you know. So where we're at is like, I say, very working class, and it's also very culturally diverse, meaning like there's a lot of immigrants, there's a lot of black people that are here, and there's also a lot of, you know, um, upwardly mobile uh, Caucasians, you know, say like techies, people that work for a lot of the tech firms here in Seattle because that's big business. Uh, there's a certain amount of gentrification that's going on in the neighborhood, and I've seen the transition happen from being borderline, you know, like not the best neighborhood you want to move into to now it's being like it's kind of like it hasn't been totally gentrified, but there's some elements of gentrification that have kind of brought the property values up, and you know, but the community still remains intact. And we're talking about Ethiopians, Eritreans, uh, Hispanics, blacks, whites. Um, fair, fairly high Asian component contingent here, and so like it's this big melting pot in the city where we live. And we've been fortunate enough to have three great schools that are all public schools that actually have a um, international component attached to them, meaning that half the day from elementary in one of the elementary school with the girls, which is only a couple blocks away from our house, walking distance was by uh, bilingual, so they could either study half the day either in Spanish or Mandarin. And they had that from kindergarten all the way to fifth grade, which was continued into the middle school, which is only like another mile down the road. Uh, and then by the time they get into high school, it's just like only offered as one class. Uh, because at that point in time, if you've gone through that whole immersion process, you're considered uh, fluent. So, okay. uh, and we've decided to stay in this part of the city, firstly, because, you know, we're big supporters and believers of public schooling, too, because of the cultural immersion that we're getting and diversity. 
Uh, and three, you know, we, it's a great location where we're at, and it's in the perfect environment for raising, in our opinion, two mixed kids because my wife is French. She's white. So when you put all those elements together and they're seeing all these kids that look like them and that are, some are mixed, you know, some are biracial, some are completely different races. I mean, it's all right there. It's a cross section, you know, of America, what America looks like and what a lot of people don't really understand. It's like, you know, America is not this, some other entity where, you know, some people, uh, you know, make America great again. I mean, what is that supposed to mean? It's like, oh, let's make America great again by what? Turning the clock back 60 years? You know, um, you know, predominantly white. Is that what we're supposed to be saying? Is that the picture of what makes it supposed to make America great again? <clears throat> but anyway, just that was kind of a long protracted explanation, you know, to the whole perceptions of uh, what a person is like, where they're from, uh, based on their color and uh, what they're you know, almost stereotypically are supposed to be like, sound like and act like. Yeah, I mean, I, dude, it was not anything other than a grand slam as far as an answer for exactly what I wanted to explore. And I, I, I first of all, thank you for, for going there because, you know, it's with what we see, whether it's on our own feeds or in the media, mainstream media, whatever, is, is, is a portrait of a different racial America than what you're actually living. And it's important, should people do the work to get through like listening to conversations like ours to hear that in places like you're describing in Seattle where you mm-hmm. know not only have you as a black man been embraced and supported and loved up for close to four decades but your french wife and your mixed daughters are immersed immersed as you so stated in a way that you know presents them with a foundation for like what's possible you know what right. I mean? As, a, as opposed to being in a situation where they're learning ingrained prejudices. You know right. what I mean? And I think that that's really why we're so sick is because uh, the current situation politically, whether it's the administration or everything from the immigration, all that, uh, yeah. has, has ingrained, yeah, like we're predominantly white and tried to reinforce this archaic white supremacist systemic racist existence that's really what our whole country is predicated on and people like you and i and your daughters and and that are privileged and blessed enough to have been shown the light and given the opportunity to live in what you know could be like an incubator for post-racial america like those are the stories that need to be shared and told and not not the hate and not the anger i mean that's that's fine i'm not there's nothing wrong with being mad and angry but there needs to oh, be everybody all should be everybody should be upset right now yes you know we, i mean but, we are and it, but it doesn't mean that uh well i mean i can't tell people how to feel it doesn't mean that you know we should hate one another i mean if everybody's upset you know that's that's a good cause for um okay well like you mentioned earlier something about regression you know moving forward in regression and one of the things that happens with you know we learn as parents and from our teachers and counselors and all this kind of stuff is like generally right before uh, a child goes through a, a major evolutionary step, you know, in their um, in their their course of life. There is a regression. Typically, you see it more obvious in say like the um, primary years of, of schooling. So, you know, from kindergarten to first grade, that's a major transition. They tend to regress. 
uh, before they're getting ready to get out of, of elementary school, going into middle school, they tend to regress a little bit, more, you know, childlike or infancy-like stage. And it's like when they're younger, it's easier to see. I, I liken this current uh, situation we're going through with pandemic and protest very similar to that, but just on a massive scale for uh, involving a massive amount of um, factors. Um, and the other thing, too, you know, we're, we're talking about, like, the, the Black Lives Matter movement, you know, as is being perceived right now, you know, in a very um, a very focused sort of uh, thing, as if, like, this agenda that just arose out of something that happened or just decided to be created over the last five years and then hits a fever pitch because of everybody's attention is focused at home now on everything that happens because we don't have our normal lives to distract us and take away from, you know, it's, it's not this sort of thing. And it ties in directly to what you're just saying about, um, you know, white dominant culture, uh, and which, which gives way to white privilege. You know, it's a byproduct, of course, you know, but we're not talking about just the last four or five months. And we're not talking about like the last five years, you know, we're talking about the last 400, 500 years. And, Maybe longer than that, you know, it's, it's, if we go all the way back to when, you know, Europe pretty much started to generally colonize most of the rest of the world, you know, by discovering everything. And then, um, you know, eventually, subsequently leading to the creation of the United States of America. Uh, but, you know, all of this stuff, you know, like you suggested, is like by a, a white dominant culture, you know, that is like expanded. Uh, to the rest of the world other than Asia, and even then, in China, um, which was under British rule for a great deal of time as well. So all these things are kind of embedded in that. So, you know, to expand people's knowledge of this sort of thing, it's just like Black Lives Matter. It's like, you already know this, too. You just made the statement. It's like it's not something that just happened a few months ago. Right, and it's unfortunate that in this day and age when something as simple as a mask to wear has become so politicized, so has Black Lives Matter, the statement, the movement, and it really, it's demoralizing. I use that word a lot, but that's just how I feel, um, mm -hmm. and it's why I want to have these conversations, because it's really not political. It's just like yeah. the golden rule, and, mm -hmm. and, and <clears throat> you know, you mentioned about just... Uh, the sort of like awakening or understanding that's happening across the board, people like willing to do the work to, to kind of figure this the fuck out or die trying. Right. Mm -hmm. So yeah. I want to ask you a, maybe a hard question and if you, you don't like it, we can edit it out. But I notice in our music scene that I know you from, from jazz fest to bear Creek, etc. cetera. Mm -hmm. uh, and, uh, you know, I've seen, I've seen the tiny universe over 150 times. So it's like I, I've, I've gravitated to funk music because I love the sound and the feeling and the way it, it just is in within me. And, and right. I naturally, when I found that at 21, 22, by way of like D'Angelo, basically, when I went, when I went to my familiar territory, the festival world, there was one predominantly black funk band in the scene doing it like the right way so i've been you know subconsciously wasn't i didn't have to prove anything it was just like these cats you know i want to i want to be down right and i just right. noticed that the rest of our scene is populated with a lot of predominantly white bands playing funk music 
is uh, are we supporting are, are is there a way that our community you know obviously there's new bands that are predominantly black like butcher brown right. and stuff but it's still really uh-huh. white not just the music but everything about it yet nothing about funk is white right and you're and you're a guy that's been doing this for like i said over fi- uh, almost 20 years just with kdtu playing to yeah. this audience black music with black dudes like yeah. I, I feel a disconnect there, and and maybe this is just my own reflection, or I, I don't know. Yeah, no, I mean it's a, it's an extremely valid point, and you know I think you and I have actually had conversations about this, you know, probably late night and almost jokingly about this, uh, but we never yeah, quite got into it to with a different extent. tenor, right? Right. Yeah, and then um, Carl and I, we we in the band every once in a while, like you know, we joke about this all the time, and you could probably even talk to all the cats in dumpster funk also. <laughs> about this I'm, i know they probably laugh about this when they see like black people in the audience especially right. when we go to festivals and it's like you know the jam band scene predominantly was formed by you know hippie culture directly you know as a direct result to like the grateful dead experience right correct okay so for tracking the lineage there so what are we looking at where all this stuff comes from and this my point will diverge at some point uh because i've got two sides of this whole discussion to sort of paint uh, a, a, a plausible, feasible explanation for all this. One is, um, so it has come and born out of a predominantly white culture as far as the audience is concerned, right? Now, if we're looking at that um, demographically and um, uh Economically, exposure-wise, what are we looking at in terms of the audience? Well, the average age is about most kids are, you know, the college age, and a lot of kids, most of the audience just have some college experience. Probably mostly come from uh, middle class, suburban, you know, or urban environments. Families, you know, mostly intact. Um, all this kind of stuff. So what we're talking about again. This goes to the white experience in this in this country of ours. Not to say anything bad or good. It's just what it is, you know. And we all know this for you know certain experiences that um, if you look at a lot of black experiences, uh, conversely, um, not as much economic uh, prosperity and freedom, uh, not as much cultural diversity. Black communities, for the most part, if you're looking at inner city populations, tend to be very insulated. Uh, a lot of people they will come from that even if they go off to college. Then is usually where the um, uh, the level of experience tends to broaden, you know, and they tend right. to yeah. maybe get influenced. And I've I've met, we even had a tour manager who definitely came from inner city uh, Philadelphia, was a, um, a football player on a scholarship, got injured, had a buddy of his introduce him to a certain amount of music in the jam community, all this kind of stuff. Well, guess what happens? You know, he went from being just involved in listening to pretty much all just hip hop and and uh, R and B, uh, to like managing you know or tour managing and then got into hip hop acts and then got out of that and somehow got connected with the jam band scene and then like you know he just was all in it for a really long time. So to attach that to the experience of going to a festival or a club and then seeing you know a very small portion of the audience is being black and the large 90% of it, 98%, a bit 95% of it, uh, mostly white, I attribute that to a lot of cultural experiences, you know, and diversity or lack of diversity or lack, a lack of exposure to certain things. The other side of that also within the black community, to my experience, um, they mostly 
black community is, is everybody listens to hip hop and R and B, you know, and it's just like I'm not going to see too many cats driving by in an Escalade, you know, not to get into stereotypes for it, but I don't think you'll ever hear fish being blasted out of you know a black man's Escalade. <laughs> I mean, know? that's that's you're not going to hear that's you're fair. not going to you're not going to hear them listening to Dave Matthews, you know, or or anything like that. Um, you might hear some like you know popular. Triple A, you know, well-known, established, you know, white artists. You know, you might see them at some of those concerts, but uh, oh, the jam band scene too is such an odd niche, you know. And unless really you're is. not coming from that angle and you've been exposed to it, you're going to miss it altogether or not get it. But then it's one of those things too. It's like black folks when they hear get introduced to certain bands like Dumpster Funk, uh, Soul Live, Tidy Universe, when they hear it, they get it. But then again, it's also a generational thing, too, because funk music doesn't hit the younger generation as much as it does the older generation. So, like, my age, so, like, DJ Williams' age, probably, you know, we're old enough but young enough, you know, to either have grown right. up during the funk experience, like me and Carl, or young enough to, like, you know, when he they started getting into playing music, it was they were listening to old music to them at that point in time, which was, like, you know, Tower of Power, and uh, Earth, Wind, and Fire, and, you know, all these other funk bands, and all these other kind of James Brown, all that kind of stuff. So there's there's one explanation uh, for all that. The other thing, too, you know, that you touched on for a minute ago is, like, black culture, black music um, that, you know, is pervasive no matter where you go. And one of the things the United States has always been um, a strong purveyor of, and this is where it really, really tears me, when it comes to music and so many things um, of any particular culture can be distilled down to art. You know, what type of art uh, is being manufactured or cultured or, or propagated or supported or embraced within that culture. And it tells you a lot about that particular culture. One thing that like the United States is so, um, um, not ambivalent, but uh, so um, here, um, yeah, uh, hypocritical about and not even understanding is the fact that the, the the biggest thing that this country has always exported has been culture, has been pop culture. Uh, even all the way before, or it's definitely through the British invasion, you know, of the '60s and late late '50s and '60s, all the way through when rock and roll was was born and discovered. All those British musicians, you know, were listening to rock and roll, but they were listening to all the old blues musicians, right? You know, like that have Muddy Waters, you already know, yeah, exactly. Oh, did so, they? Right. Yes. So all of that stuff didn't exist until because of blues and jazz, you know, and everything. All of this stuff was directly born out of all of that particular culture. Again, black culture. And there was a term. I remember talking to somebody about this. I did a um, discussion. I was part of a discussion panel uh, for a friend of ours who is a um, doing his doctorate at a university here, and he wanted to have a race panel discussion about cultural appropriation. And so one of the things I brought up in this discussion, there was a term that my dad told me, and it's like, but what's, and I remember this very, very much also from, like, uh, music history and all this kind of stuff when I was studying in college, and the term was the music that people used to uh, that people used to cross the tracks for, you know, like South Side of Chicago, you had to go across a series of, of train tracks, probably past like the stockyards or, um, you know, what do they call that? Where the trains are always being uh, hooked up and coupled, all that kind of stuff, and then you have all the, you know, the poorer communities on the other side of town, all that kind of stuff. So the term was like the music that people used to cross the tracks for. So like either there was like a 
a speakeasy or a juke joint, you know, or something right. like that, where this so quote unquote illicit salacious music was being played. Uh, but people heard about it and wanted to go check it out, and that's what they were doing. And so eventually, that sort of stuff. And we know the story of how all this, you know, gets appropriated, and um, you know, and then also gets um, sort of whitewashed, as it were, and then spit out on the radio. But a lot, you know, a lot of white artists were listening to all these blues artists, and that's how the birth of rock and roll came about. You know, and attributed to a lot of artists like you know Little Richard. Oh you know, yeah, I mean things of that nature. hundred percent, so, Little Richard, rest in peace. So if we flash forward. Through all those years, you know, from 40s all the way up until now, it's like, what did we get? Well, it's like, you know, it was all started from blues and jazz, turns into rock and roll. Rock and roll at some point gives way to all these other different forms, and then funk comes along, you know, in the 60s and 70s. That blows up. And then what did you get after that? We got R&B, which has always been around, soul music, which has always been around, and then hip-hop, the next biggest musical explosion. And hip-hop is in pretty much some form or another in just about every form of pop music nowadays. Everybody adapts oh, yeah. some, some form of hip-hop. You know? And so America has always been a big purveyor of all these elements of music, which just dominated the airwaves you know, for, for years. And where does all that stuff really come from? Where's the source? You know, these are the things that we're talking, you and I are talking yeah. about, but then the rest of the world, you know, just like, you know, um, consumes and listens to and is embedded in it and lives by it, you know, and even tries to appropriate it, you know, by using, taking certain words, what I don't even use any word, but the N-word, you know, and then trying to use that within their own communities, addressing their own homies, you know, as it were, because of hip-hop culture. It's made that term, you know, kind of a little more accessible than, than I would like to see, but it, you know, that's the way it goes. And so, um, and then not being fully aware of, you know, what that word really means or where it comes from, you know, all that kind of stuff. And then you get white people calling other white people the N-word. It's uh, trying to be cool. It's you the know, cringiest kind of shit. Stuff. Yeah. So this whole, you know, a cultural appropriation thing kind of comes on. And then here's the hypocrisy that comes in. On top of all that, everybody has the gall to stand up and say, you know, it's like, well, all lives matter. You know, well, we're just at, we're not asking for anybody. Uh, we're not we're not trying to ask for anything that isn't already due that you guys are already getting. We just want that too. You know, yes. and then what the responses we get, you know, it's just like certain things like you know, you know, like people should be fired for taking a knee, you know, instead of uh, the national anthem standing for that and protest. And it's like basically what it comes down to is like you're not allowed to protest. It's inconvenient. I don't want to see it. I don't want to hear it. There's no good time to protest. Well, you that know, is that no is on way to protest. That is on like a hundred right now in places mm -hmm. like Portland, where people are just trying to protest and and they're being squashed by you know fascist police tactics. I yeah. didn't want to hijack what you had just said, but but no. you know it's it's beyond just inconvenience of protesting. It's become like a just today, yesterday, the day before, just absolute. Oh, fascist uh, yeah. tactics, Gestapo tactics, and not just now, like a month ago, when the first, you know, round of uprisings took place, they were like gassing people, in, literally saw the video, tear gassing people in Philly uh, for peace, yeah. peacefully walking down the, the middle of the road. But I want to backtrack to a lot of what you just said, man, because that was so, you took it so much more macro than just the jam band scene, but 
it's a microcosm. So when you think about the greats, the funk greats that are being sort of as uh, whitewashed or, you know, regurgitated in some ways, it's the same way people will try to say Eminem's the greatest MC ever, but, but most Def made a song about that. And 10 years before that, Public Enemy made a song about that. It's just mm-hmm. like, you know, Elvis was a hero to most, and you can take it all the way oh, back yeah. to well, Elvis. Oh, yeah. never did shit for me, you know, motherfucker right. Kim and John Wayne. <laughs> exactly. Because <laughs> I'm black and I'm proud. There you yeah, go. I know. So uh, I'm saying it's, it's just been a trickle-down thing, going back to Little Richard, to Elvis, to the Stones taking the blues, and, and you know, a lot of great music and art has come out of that, and uh, there's nothing right. wrong with that. But some it's, of the larger artists, to their credit, you know, give credit sure. you know, to yeah. some of the, their their heroes they were listening to. I mean, one of the things, what was it? Uh, um, um, uh, female singer, she's been around for a long time, singer songwriter, Bonnie Raitt. Oh yeah, she's you fantastic. Know, she gives a lot of credit to them. She is also attributed to re- resurrecting Charles Brown's career. Charles Brown, you know, what they credited him with being the inventor of West Coast blues. He had like virtually disappeared. Was like you know, virtually disappeared, and the guy was like a janitor, all this kind of stuff. And so she decided to dig him out of nowhere, found him, recorded an album because he'd been listening to his albums, his music forever, and then like just his career was resurrected. I mean, that's you know, beautiful. That. Yeah, um, you know, but that, that sort of whitewashing approach appropriation it happens all the time. You know, it's just like uh, artists like Pat Boone, you know. <laughs> Or Elvis Presley, you know, or whatever, you know, it's like, and the, the industry, you know, is ripe with those kinds of attempts. It's like, they see something cool. Here's a phenomenon. Let's do this. Now let's develop, you know, the more palatable, uh, easily accessible, marketable version of all this, you know, to the rest of the, of the, the white community. So they'll buy it, you know, kind of stuff. And so that's been going on forever. It really has. And, and. Well, thank you for articulating that in a way that, you know, we can unpack and resonate with. I think it's important because it makes people uncomfortable when they kind of face that stuff, myself included. But it's truth. And the only way we're going to get through the sort of division and like lack of understanding of one another is to confront that kind of stuff, whether it's the music yeah. stuff or the culture stuff. And, and you know, like... Man, it's it's hard because, you know, people are worried that they say the wrong thing or who do they offend? And you talk about, like, all the flag stuff, the kneeling stuff. Everything's become so divisive and politicized. It's important, just to bring it back to what you had said before, that, mm-hmm. like, uh, how you're raising your kids and the community you live in, that that sort of story is told and that people realize that it's it's not a, some far away dream. Granted, in no. most of America, we are pretty far away from that reality, but it's not oh, yeah. impossible. Well, I'll tell you another thing, B, and here's an analogy that, uh, maybe it's not even an analogy, uh, that might be the, the best use of words for this, but, you know, well, maybe it is. Okay, the analogy of something like, if you don't like what you're seeing on the television, like you're complaining about, this content is crap, you know, how can you do this on TV? And it's like, well, change the fucking channel. You don't have to watch it. You know, it's the same thing with, like, how people can possibly be upset. You know, now we're talking a little more extreme here. If you're talking about white separatists or white nationalists, you know, the notion, like, they really don't feel comfortable with having any people of color or uh, sexual orientation other than themselves uh, embedded in their community. Now, that being said, it's like, okay, when you go inside your house and you close the door and you're in your home and you're looking around and you got everything that you put in your home that, you know, makes you happy, how in the world 
is somebody, if you have a neighbor who's black, affecting that? <laughs> How can you possibly fathom that? How can anybody possibly fathom that? You know, it's just like, if, if you walk outside, when you, like, same thing, with like, I, I liken this to uh, the pandemic, you know, it's like, yes, okay, the circumstances, the situations we live in right now are, are terrible, you know, with, with the, the social distancing and quarantine and all that kind of stuff. However, when I look out my window in the morning, it's like to see this beautiful sunny day, clear skies and all that kind of stuff. If you just look out of that window every day, regardless of what's going on, does it look any different because there's a pandemic going on? Of course not. No, it looks the same, you know. And if so anything, it looks better. Door, yeah, exactly. When you walk out of your door, it's the same thing, you know. It's just like your house is there, the other person's house is over there. You know, what difference does it make, you know, who is living next to you or what they look like? Unless that person is an asshole and they're, you know, they're not being neighborly and they got their music loud all, every night and they're waking you up and their dog's running around all over the place and they got garbage all over the place. You know, but the person is being, you know, a responsible neighbor to you, you know, and the community, all kind of stuff. Why the fuck did you even care what they look like when they're skin? You know, where they come from? Why? You know? Seriously. You don't, you don't even have to interact with that person if you don't want to. But no, that's not enough for some people. Some people, as you and I know, want to hate other people strictly because of the color of their skin. Yeah. There's, and no, there's no proven reason to be upset and think that black people are a threat to you. You know, to the white community. How on earth can you, can you <laughs> even statistically speaking, it's like black-on-white crime is negligible compared to black-on-black crime. Indeed. Yeah, man. It's 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 unfortunate that we're the exception, not the rule, and that's why we got to be having these conversations. And look, I, I think twice, oftentimes, like, can I ask my black friend Chris to do some emotional labor for white people? You know, because it's you guys and gals have been doing that for as long as I've been alive, and then some. Yeah. It's like up to white folks to like commune amongst ourselves and be like, all right, we got to fucking do something here. And, that, and that's kind of why I want to have the conversation. But at the same time, you know, it's important for somebody with perspective and, you know, a few years and uh, life experiences under their belt, you know, to shed some light on really like the, the tenor of things. Like not everybody has the perspective that you do for all the reasons you've detailed and a num number of others. So just great, oh, yeah. grateful that you were like willing to take it there to kind of like sure. break it down because not everybody can really go there at least and, and also not get caught up in the sort of emotional stuff attached to it, which is inevitable. And I think that's what we're seeing in every direction is, is the pandemic mm -hmm. and the, and the sheltering at home has created a, this whole like digital addiction and, and staying inside and all that stuff compounded by what we're seeing on our screens. It's yeah. maddening. I, you know, I kind of reminds me a little bit of, um, what was the movie? Stanley Kubrick, um, clockwork orange for violence. Clockwork Ultra orange. Violet. Yeah. Yeah. Clockwork orange, you know, great uh, film. McDonald was sit there and he's forced with his eyes open to watch know, the violence, watch, right? To watch the violence round the clock, you know, until he's like, brainwashed you know in a sense and there's a little bit of that that's going on and it's also that again that weird strange veil of technology in a screen that allows us to you know continually being inundated you know at will 
uh, by choice, for good and for bad, um, and then also engage in a seemingly, you know, um, kind of sometimes self-defeating sort of manner, like, you know, engaging with people in arguments that just get ugly and uglier and uglier and downright, you know, mean and violent and, you know, uh, you know, based on all these things, whether it's either it comes down to, like, your, your take on Black Lives Matter or you're talking about, you know, Donald Trump or if you're talking about a, wearing a fucking mask, you know, and if we're talking about factual information, statistical information that supports opinions, you know, uh, all this kind of stuff, and then the people want to refute certain things and certain claims that are just clearly, you know, a, a reasonable deduction of what is occurring and has been occurring and what the results are and from reputable sources. And then people want to just dismiss that and still go about their way. And then, you know, all these you know, embedded, infracted, uh, you know, divisive, heated discussion. You know, I guess heated discussions are kind of being nice with some occurrences that I've experienced online. Oh, yeah, total meltdowns. Yeah, and it, it's just like, God, I mean, you can't turn away from it unless you, you physically have to. Yeah. You know, which I've, I've had to do, you know, from time to time because, like, I just feel myself getting eaten up. Yeah. You know, and then also to touch on, uh, touch like, how this is going for my children, um, you know, I've taken them to a couple of rallies and a couple of marches. You know, I, I took them to one uh, that was a uh, was a uh, recreation or inspired by that. Was it 1968 Children's Led March? Right on. Um, I forgot where that took place. It was was it in Mobile? I'm not sure. But this one was all children led. So it was it was all families and everybody's masked up. You know, and side note too, it's just like here in Washington State. Uh, because most people in Seattle have been following a lot of the protocols, is like we're not experiencing the spikes like in certain places like the rest of the country are. And one of the things that they've actually, um, which we thought we were going to see and we didn't see, is like they didn't see a spike directly related to all the protest activity. Why? Because so many people were wearing masks. I mean, everybody was wearing masks, and people were even handing out masks. Yeah. I mean, when I went here in Oakland, it was masked up everywhere. You got the side eye if you didn't. Mm-hmm. But I mean, it's unfortunately that, that unfortunate that something as simple as the social contract of wearing a mask to, to uh, in essence, protect others has been so politicized and divisive. I think we're on the same team there, and probably most yeah. of my listeners are. I, oh, yeah. I, I do want to just because, like, man, the, you did a lot of uh, labor here, like emotionally and and just educationally. So I would like if my listeners have made it this far, um, and I appreciate everyone who tunes in. If we could give them just some music gems at the end. Where can people hear the latest closed circuit stuff? Oh, the latest closed circuit stuff. Well, I mean, I've got a single that's out. You know, I put it out, oh, gosh, it's been almost a year now. I remember, yeah. Um, yeah, Unexpected Guest. So it's been out since, I think, what, this February? Just before February? Or maybe I did it uh, before Christmas. I can't remember. It's been a long time. It's about six months now. Uh, unexpected Guest. And then, uh, I mean, you know, I'm working on other stuff right now that's more... Uh, lyrically oriented for myself, creation-wise, instead of um, uh, instead of um, instrumental, and um, but I tend to favor the Earth, Wind, and Fire uh, business model or creative model or Stevie Wonder 
uh, in terms of creative content whenever I do write lyrics um, or lyrical content. And that is uh, they both tend to speak more often than not in their content about a higher power and a higher calling, uh, you know, the spiritual plane, as it yes. were. And, and not necessarily just suggesting, say, God. Uh, what Stevie Wonder does reckon to, and you know, Jesus' children, and have a talk with God, and all these kinds of things. But they they all definitely recognize, you know, and, and um, draw attention to a higher power and things that are more than ourselves. I would say, gosh, you know, listen to any any Earth, Wind, and Fire, and any Stevie Wonder uh, for all those things, because it's the, one of the things that I'm finding right now that's going on. It's like touching back to what we were just saying in regards to uh, the divisiveness and. You know, the anxiety and the frustrations and, you know, yes. hatred that's going on and, 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 you know, violence, too. Yes. Um, the thing that, that I'm noticing, and I try to do this when I do post socially on media, social media, is I try to offer something either in the, in the form of a question or, you know, something to provoke, to provoke thought or an alternative um, solution. You know, in regards of what's going on, I'm not trying to post anything that's going to be uh, incendiary, inflammatory, uh, and divisive. You know, in that unless I'm posting, you know, like kind of empirical knowledge, so it's something like okay, voter suppression statistics and uh, voter turnout statistics, or the fact that uh, you know, voter mail mail-in balloting is actually um, it's harder to uh, conduct voter fraud and the fact that it, it does have a higher turnout of rates of people do of casting their votes um, and it's cheaper you know things like that um, right. that kind of information which needs to be put out there don't you know or I'll put something out there so like hey people don't don't believe the hype on certain things you know go and factor your own fact-finding or you know those kinds of things um, so when I put stuff out, it's like that, which I haven't done anything in a while, um, and, and mostly on purpose. And uh, But um, I tell you one thing uh, that I've cited a lot lately, and I, I probably the most current thing I would have to suggest would be the Tiny Universe album, the new, the latest one. And it's because uh, I've had a chance to talk with Carl um, lately since all this stuff has gone, and remotely we've had a very similar discussions like this interview is podcast is, is all these topics you know touching on everything from like family to pandemic to race relations um you know lack of, of work missing the you know work ethic and what we're doing you know individually in our own uh, perspective spaces and his latest album um uh knowns and badgers yep is a great piece of work and it was kind of just slightly ahead of its time but very poignant, uh, based on what's going on right now, and oh, every and since we re he released this album, uh, I've been citing him. I quote Carl Denson quite a bit, actually, when I talk to people. And um, but one of the things he's been saying, you know, at the beginning of every show when he's introducing and promoting and talking about the latest album, how you know happy and proud he is of it, and, and like we all are to be a part of it, is that. Um, you know, the story, the, the uh, theory, or the, um, uh, not the theorem, what is it, hypothesis, <laughs> whatever you want to say it, behind the album, the concept, working concept, is the gnomes and badgers are these two fictional uh, creatures that live in a forest, you know, and, you know, you can uh, superimpose uh, your own environment for this, or, you know, what would it be an allegory or something like that for all of this, and uh, what it is, it's like, uh, the gnomes and the badgers are obviously two different species, but they live in this environment and they live in a community. And um, 
they don't always get along and they don't always agree, you know, but they do have a rule. They have laws, you know, and it's just like, okay, you're allowed to disagree. But the thing is, if you're going to disagree with a person, you have to do so in a civil manner. You're not allowed to get, you know, name calling and, you know, right. threaten violence and all these kinds of stuff and bring up somebody's, you know, uh, sexual orientation or their race or all that kind of stuff. You're not allowed to do all that. You're allowed to disagree. And you have to, if you're going to have a discussion or discourse, it has to be, you know, based in critical thinking, you know, and credible facts. You know, you can't just come off the cuff, you know, with some bullshit and, you know, like just because you wrote it, read it as a meme on social media, therefore you, you take Preach. it as fact. You know, it's just like, you know, you've got to go and vet your facts. <laughs> and Carl's always been a big proponent of that. That's why Carl watches CNN as much as he watches Fox. Because he wants to see both sides of the story. He wants yeah. to understand that information. And he doesn't want to just be biased, you know. You know, and it, and he's true. It's like, you know, we all know there's two sides to every story. Now, you know, wh whether one's something you agree with or not doesn't change the fact that it actually may exist and it actually may be correct. Um, you know, it's like my dad used to always say, it's like everybody's entitled to their opinion no matter how worthless it is. That's fair. So, and I yeah. see, you know, the American way. Yeah. So I guess if I had to leave you with, you know, one little nugget, I would say go and listen to Gnomes and Badgers. You know, oh, there's there's a lot of great material out there for you and all the listeners. I know you've heard it, and I know you love yeah. it, and it's it's been doing fantastic. Yeah, and I, I would wrote say a story that, on that album, actually. Well, yeah, that's right, yeah. You reviewed it, so, yeah. yeah. Well, that's awesome. We'll definitely uh, we'll play some of that and probably some classic live uh, Tiny Universe along with a track or two from Gnomes and Badgers, and then... Uh, mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, and a I snippet like, of closed oh, circuit too. So we'll, we'll yeah, make sure. Yeah, a closed circuit, and I would say you know maybe some drop some public enemy in there, fight the power. Yeah, we'll do. You know, and of course that's, Stevie, that's Stevie, Stevie and Earth, Wind and Fire, like you noted. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, I guess if I had to say, what closed circuit tune do we have that's out that? Uh, um, settle down. <laughs> Perfect. Settle down. That's probably our as our first single, and. Um, Perfect you know, it's, for it's the occasion. Really, People need that yeah. message. <laughs> yeah, it's just it's all about like you know not working yourself up. Don't get don't go caught up. You know, relax. Yeah. Just settle right settle right into the groove. You've had a ton of the uh, really great analogies and uh, linear comparisons. Maybe the greatest was the kindergarten regression, uh, because in essence, if you think historically, uh, the country is like a kindergartner. Like all the rest of the country, of the world are grown folk and the u.s is a kindergartner so you know from from my lips to jaw ears let this be that kindergarten regression into the leap of consciousness that is elementary school absolutely absolutely and you know that's based on uh another comparison you you made you know about children and uh you know which ties into the whole regression thing too is that uh uh, that's the wave of the future, you know, what everybody can do to help. It's like, you know, what can we do? It's besides like voting or protesting, you know, or writing your congressman or making a, a generous donation to an organization that's going to help, um, <clears throat> is raise your children right. Yes. You know, be, be, be nice to other people, you know. It's like it doesn't cost anything. It, it, it's not going to hurt anyone. It's it. We already know this. So I'm you know preaching to the choir, but like those, that's where it starts. Yeah, people you need know? to hear it. 
for sure. And like my wife, you know, case in point, it's like, you know, she's childcare, primary childcare, primary uh, child education, you know, those formative years between like two to five, you know, preschoolers and toddlers, you know, when the majority of their personality is formed. And like preschool is one of those things, it's really teaching kids how to interact with one another, you know, how to get along, how to share, uh, how to be nice. You know, how to resolve conflicts in, in the simplest nature. What does it feel like when somebody does this to you? You know, those kinds of things. And uh, I credit her all the time. It's just like, you know, she worries about not having a great enough or wanting to do more of an impact. It's like, honey, you know what? Right there. That's that's at the beginning. You're you're getting it right at the source. And you're really? being praised by all these parents. And then the children that you see for all the years that you've been doing this, when they come back to you, it's like that's... Where the groundwork needs to happen. It's the future generations. And it's that's that, how all this stuff gets changed. And it's like everything else after that point is a band aid. Everything else after that, we're trying to fix a problem as opposed to getting it right at the start. <clears throat> Get it right at the source. And interfacing with the children on a daily basis, you know, that's the that's the way. You know, it's the yeah. only, it's really the only way to instill those ideas and values that we mm -hmm. want that we want to, yeah, to make that leap. damn sure you could damn sure bet that that's where the opposing views have come from you know that's where hatred and race racism oh, comes from one thousand percent yeah so the only way to combat that you know then like in my opinion truly you know what dr king says is like with love you know, and compassion. Well, it's like maybe you can't meet it head on with love and compassion, but maybe you can treat some other you know, very positive, strong force with that intent and that um, that purpose, you know, to drive forward, you know, um, a more a prosperous and creative and hopeful message, you know, that'll sustain and then that'll grow from there, you know. I mean, I think you, you use everything. So, of course, that that calm and, and compassion is essential to the long term, but at times, as we've come to realize, it needs to be met with a rage and defiance yeah. because, you know, you don't often get the attention otherwise. So, man, right. this is really heart-filling and hopeful, inspiring conversation, man. I, I'm really grateful that, that we opened it up like this. And, you know, when yeah, we're hanging out next time, we'll do, like, the whole career story pod where we talk about... Oh the records you heard as a kid and their first gigs and getting, oh, yeah. you know, cause oh, we got to do that one too, but this was more pertinent and, and this is, was oh, more yeah. important at this moment. I felt. Oh yeah. No, I'd be, I tell you, man, I'm so glad that you're doing this and I'm so glad that we got to cover such a, a myriad of, of, uh, pressing, you know, immediate, um, topics. Indeed. Know, and occurrences right now. Um, Same. so yeah. All right, Chris, man, I love you. Thank you yeah, for your me. time and energy. Likewise, brother. And, of Absolutely. course, the music. Yes, much love to you, too, my brother. Hopefully uh, sooner rather than later, but only safely. Live long and prosper, my friend. <laughs> yes. You do the same. Throwing up the Spock hands to you, my man. Yes, indeedy. want to say big thanks and large up to my man, Chris Littlefield, for that thought-provoking and just fantastic conversation. My dear friend, 
very appreciative of his willingness to open up and take it there on some of those tough topics and also illuminate a little bit of what's happening with uh, kids and, and growing up and growing pains in the COVID era and the racial tensions and uh, sort of cultural climate that his daughters are growing up and living in in real time. Not to mention all the teaching and the perspective on being a musician who makes a living touring and is now at home and seeking other avenues. So really just a lot of pertinent and salient content and conversation from Chris Littlefield. You are hearing Settle Down from his electronic project Closed Circuit, K-L-O-Z-D-S-I-R-K-U-T, Closed Circuit. So check that out on all the social media sites and Spotify, etc. Settle Down's a track, sort of like a psychedelic, electro-funk vibe, party music. Seen him live a couple of times, dope. So shout out to uh, Closed Circuit, and of course KDTU, Carl Denson's Tiny Universe. Seen them so many, many times, and... A band very close to my heart. And as such, we're going to do the Vibe Junkie Jam of the Week with a classic from the Tiny Universe. I'm taking it way back to the OG Bonnaroo 2002 for the Vibe Junkie Jam of the Week. I should just start calling it the Vibe Junkie Jam because it's not weekly. It just rolls off the tongue like that. So, mental note. Vibe Junkie Jam for episode 35 from Bonnaroo, 2002. So I, back in those days, I was uh, a blossoming writer, journalist for Jambase.com. And about a week before the fest, I received uh, by post, by mail, four hard copy uh, tickets to the uh, inaugural Bonnaroo Music and Arts Festival in Manchester, Tennessee. So we loaded up the... Uh, Mercury Grand Marquis that was bequeathed to me by my late grandfather, Poppy Saulfeld, and uh, Jeff A., Dr. Schaus, and Gabay, the three of us, or four of us, I should say, hopped in the whip, my hometown crew, and we did the however many hours drive down there to Tennessee, and Gorilla camped. You know, I'd been to a number of festivals. I'd even written some festival reviews, but um, I was ill-prepared for Bonnaroo. We all were, and we kind of figured it out on the fly, and it was a fun and innocent time. And, of course, I was deep into the tiny universe at that time, chasing them all over this great land. So, you know, I was like third-row center in the uh, Randall Cunningham jersey representing, and basically... Uh, KDTU unleashed what was their uh, norm in those days, which was like three and a half hour monster late night throwdown in the spirit of Jazz Fest. Because really, that's what uh, that's what Bonnaroo was in the beginning. It was born out of the spirit of uh, Jazz Fest after dark. Literally, Superfly Productions uh, they threw late night Jazz Fest shows in New Orleans and. Decided they want to have a festival, and alas, Bonnaroo was born. And Carl D. was the king of the late-night jazz fest throwdown in those days. No disrespect to the local New Orleans musicians, but just as an out-of-towner myself, you know, I I was uh, 
just really drawn to those 2.30 to 6 or 6.30 a.m. throwdowns at uh, Tipitina's House of Blues. And then uh, eventually Helen Wolf, etc. I digress. I'm just telling stories here. I'm going to play this track from the Bonnaroo set. They only played it a couple times back then. Maybe like three or four in the summer of 2002 on the set list. It was alternately called New Afro or just New Tune. And it was this like multi-part epic. Uh, They later recorded a version of it, you know, 12 years later for uh, their album New Ammo. And it's a pretty faithful rendition to what we heard in the summer of 02. But just can't really put into words what it felt like to hear this... uh, new tune just hot off the press as carl said at the beginning incredible uh it was rechristened odysseus on the new ammo album but uh it was new afro to me for you know a dozen years and uh, you can hear the Burkfest version on archive.org and one other but i'm going to play the bonnaroo version it's a it's like a 10 minute multi-part epic And uh, that'll be the Vibe Junkie Jam for episode 35 of the Up For Life podcast. Going deep into the annals of the tiny universe in tribute to not just the Diesel, but my man Chris Littlefield as well. And we're going to have more Carl Denson's Tiny Universe related conversations on this very show in the very near future. So with that... I'm going to let this groove on play out for a second while I cue up New Afro from Bonnaroo 2002, also known as Odysseus. And that'll wrap things up for episode 35 of the Up Full Life podcast. I'm your host, B. Getz. Wubba, wubba, wubba. Goodbye. Job bless. And we'll see you next time. try this out on y'all. So y'all just sit back. (laughs) We don't have a name for this.
All right. How's it going out there? Well, we'd like to thank you for a really good time. We'd like to thank Superfly for having us out. We'd like to thank all the bands for showing up. All the workers for doing their part, because this is very well done for our first time out, don't you think?